Good morning, church. Happy uh, third day of Hanukkah to those who observe it. We do have some uh, Jewish believers here. Um, that being said, if you can open up your, your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, uh, please do. The title of the sermon is Charity Without Hypocrisy. So Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Once you're at Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, if you are able to physically stand for the public reading of Scripture, please do. Uh, I will be reading from the Christian Standard Bible. Our Lord Jesus says this. He says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father in heaven. So, whenever you give to the poor, don't sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be applauded by people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you give to the poor, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This is the Word of God. Let's go to our Lord in prayer one more time. Lord, we just come before you and we ask you to be with us as we dive into your word. I pray, God, that you would just give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to understand and receive what is in your word, that we would be changed by what is in your word, that if we have a draw, a temptation, a weakness towards hypocrisy, Lord, that you root that out of our hearts and that we would be those who grow in Christ-likeness and imitate you more and more, God. I pray that you would remove me as much as possible from this. Uh, we pray if there's anybody here who doesn't know you, that by the hearing of your word and the hearing of the gospel, that you would breathe new life into them, life eternal. And we just pray in everything, God, that you would be glorified. And so we pray all these things, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please have a seat. <clears throat> so just a couple days ago, preparing for the sermon, I typed in my internet search engine this. I typed, largest charitable giver in 2022. Instantly, without the internet having to think at all, it said this. Warren Buffett remains the largest lifetime giver, having donated $5.4 billion in 2022 for a cumulative total of $51.5 billion. Now, that line was then connected to a Forbes magazine article that then listed a lot of the wealthiest givers and how much they gave to charity. Now, this list of people they gave, and they let the whole world know what they gave. This then led to Forbes and other magazines holding them up so that we could all look at these people with, with admiration. And no doubt, charity is good. I'm sure a lot of people were helped by all these donations. And for that, I'm glad. I, I, I really am. But Forbes and these billionaires are leaving out a very important question. And the question is this, what does God think about our generosity? I mean, we know generosity is a good thing and good comes from it. But also we know that God has not left us in the dark about charity. He has not left us ignorant as to what he thinks. He shows us in scripture that he's the most generous giver of all. So we know charity is a good thing. But God cares not only about the act of charity. He also cares about the motive of charity and the manner of charity. And when the world ignores what he has said about the motive and the manner, then it becomes obvious that Often, their charity is just a lot of overhyped grandstanding. And all that means is it's earning the favorable praise and attention for spectators all over the world. And that's one reason they're doing it. And God is not pleased with that. But let's be real. This isn't just a temptation for unbelieving billionaires. We also are drawn to the applause of people. We all like the attaboy or girl. We like people thinking favorable thoughts about us. And therefore, we, Christians, we too are tempted toward grandstanding. Well, Jesus speaks to this issue for us in this text. He tells us how to think about it, how to engage the subject of charity in the clearest terms. And so for the note takers, the point of the text is this. If you want to sum this passage up into a single sentence, it's this. Let your acts of charity be for God's eyes alone. Let your acts of charity be for God's eyes alone. Now, how do we do that? Well, Jesus is going to teach us how in two parts. First, he tells us how not to do it. That's the first part, how not to give charity, really how not to have the wrong motive and wrong manner. And then the second part, is he tells us how to give to charity. 
Real simple. And when we put these two parts together, we will clearly see that our acts of charity are for God's eyes alone. Now, before we jump into the text, I need to remind us of where we're at. For those of you who are, who are new here or just visiting with us, we preach through whole books of the Bible, so we don't do these topical messages where we jump around. We stick in a book and we, you know, go in it until we're done. So I've been taking us through Matthew for some time now. And so far, what this book has showed us is that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. He is the Savior that God started promising the world back in the very beginning of the Bible. He is the Messiah, or the King of the Jews, and therefore, since he is the Messiah, he is also the King of the world. And Christmas is coming around, we celebrate his coming into the world. But before he comes in the future to finally expel sin and death and the curse, he first 2,000 years ago came in humility, not to expel sin and death, but to defeat sin and death. And so he defeated those by dying in our place. He came to die for our sin in order to pay our penalty for us so that we wouldn't have to pay that penalty. Because for us, that penalty is hell. But he paid it in our place so we wouldn't have to. And then he raised from the dead three days later with indestructible life. And in so doing, he announced that death has been defeated. It is, it, it, he killed death with his resurrection. It is, it, it, he's given it its death blow. It's only a matter of time before death is expelled from existence. And so through his death, burial, and resurrection then, he saves the believer from the penalty and the power of sin. And he guarantees our eternal life in the future. So Matthew, the gospel writer, has been pulling out all stops to make it abundantly clear that Jesus is the Messiah we've been waiting for. And he does this by showing us what Jesus does and what Jesus teaches. First four chapters, we saw what Jesus does. In our text this morning, we're seeing what Jesus teaches. We are in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, which is the most famous message ever spoken in all of history. And in this sermon, Jesus is answering a question that people have been chasing after since the beginning of time. How can we be people who flourish? How can we be people who really do well in the eyes of God? And the answer is simple. Live entirely for God in this present evil age while doing what is right, hoping in him for the perfect age to come. So we live entirely for God right now, but we do so in light of what is to come. So how do you live for God in this age? You live according to the Bible. You read it and you do it, right? You, you obey what you read. And when the, when thing, it'll be hard sometimes. And when the going gets tough, just remember this age right now where sin and death seem to be normal, this age is temporary. Our ultimate reward will come in the future perfect age where no one will die. There'll be no more goodbyes. It will be perfect. So in light of that, we serve him diligently now. And if you're faithful to him now, it will help you live wisely in this world right now. So that's what it's about. But how? Like, what does it look like? He opened the Sermon on the Mount, if you remember, with eight Beatitudes, which were eight announcements of what the flourishing person is like. He then told us if somebody is like that, they're going to be like salt and they're going to be like light. And what that means is like salt will preserve that which is good and we will show with perfect flavor the ways of God. And like light, we will expose the darkness in the world. And by doing that, our good works will show the world our God and they'll glorify him because they're seeing what right looks like. But then that poses the next question. All right, if we're going to be salt and light, what does that look like? Like, how do we live as salt and light? How do we embody those eight Beatitudes? Well, Jesus told us, starting in chapter 5, verse 20, it's by following the law of God. He said he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He said not one letter or stroke of a letter will pass away until heaven and earth passes away. He said anyone who does not keep the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, he says they'll be least in the kingdom of God. And then he put the cap on this all and said, unless our righteousness surpasses or exceeds that of the Pharisees and the scribes, then we won't inherit the kingdom of heaven. Now I want you to think about it. Those were the religious experts. Those were the guys that supposedly knew this better than anybody. And Jesus says our righteousness has to be greater than theirs. Now, they didn't impress Jesus. It turns out that the way that they read the Bible and kept the law, it was often just for show. It was on the surface but it wasn't obedience from the heart. 
So Jesus then spends the rest of chapter 5, which we finished last time, showing us what right looks like. He gave us six examples. He quoted the Old Testament six times, takes a commandment, says you heard it was said, and then he says, but I tell you, he shows us how to keep it from the heart. And what we learned is murder isn't just about murder. It begins with hateful anger. Adultery isn't just about sleeping around when you're married. It starts with lust. And so with all six of those commandments, he showed us that kind of thing. He showed us how to read the Bible rightly and live in a way that pleases God. So he takes us through those six examples. He gives us the method for how we can keep God's commandments from the heart, which would then make us live in a way that is more righteous than the hypocritical scribes and Pharisees. Well, that catches us up. Now we're in chapter 6, and Jesus is shifting the subject just a little bit. And what he's going to show us is there's a wrong kind of righteousness. And what do I mean by that? Well, here's what I mean. There is a way to do all the right things and still be wrong. And I know that sounds crazy, but it's true. There's a way to do all the right things and still be wrong. Now, on the surface, people will look at you, they'll think you're holy. But in reality, you're just a fraud. See, chapter 5 showed us how to follow God's law in terms of keeping commandments. Chapter 6 is now going to show us how to follow God's law in terms of personal piety, meaning your personal acts of individual righteousness. And Jesus is going to focus specifically on good things that a lot of people do for a bad reason. See, we've been called to have a greater righteousness, and therefore, we need to see and understand what Jesus is talking about. In both ancient and modern Judaism, there were three acts of piety or righteousness that were at the top of the list. It's charity, prayer, and fasting. It's all throughout Jewish literature for the last 2,000 years, even more than 2,000 years. And if you notice, Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 18, he deals with exactly those same three things in the same order. Charity, prayer, and fasting. Now, all three of these are good things. They're the right things to do. But all three of them invite the same temptation. They invite the temptation that we do these things in front of people so that they will think we're amazing people. Listen, if we do these three right things for the wrong reason, then we're hypocrites. And that is what the Lord is going to show us. So with that, let's take a look at it. Let's begin with verse 1. In verse 1, Jesus lays down the principle for the next 18 verses. He lays it down for all three of these right things. So look at verse 1. He says this. He says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father in heaven. Now, as I said, this is laying down the point for the next, really, three or four sermons. I don't know how long it's going to take me to get through verse 18. And so it's a good idea to reread this verse before each of the examples, charity, prayer, and fasting, because it sets the principle. Now, what the Lord is saying here is not rocket science. You don't have to have a seminary degree to understand what he's saying. It is a simple command. He says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. And just to make it clear, in Greek, it is a command. This is not a suggestion. This is not Jesus telling you what he wishes you would do. This is what we are supposed to do. But if you're a careful reader, you might be scratching your head at what Jesus says here. Why? Well, remember when he was telling us about being salt and about being light in chapter 5? What does he say in chapter 5, verse 16? Look at it. He says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Right? That's what he said. And yet in our verse this morning, he says, don't practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. So, which is it? Is he contradicting himself? What's going on here? And I'll tell you, no, the Lord is not contradicting himself. He never does. These are talking about two very different things. If you look again at chapter 5, verse 16, we're to be salt and light so that unbelievers could see our good works, but for what purpose? The purpose is what matters. It's so that they will give glory to your Father in heaven. See, when your works are done properly, they're not calling attention to you. They're pointing to God. The, the purpose is not that people will look at you, but the purpose is they'll look up, they'll look at God, they'll give him the glory. But if you compare that to what we just read in chapter 6, verse 1, Jesus is talking about you, quote, practicing righteousness. Okay, so this isn't just good works in general. This is actually a technical term that refers to those personal acts of piety. These are personal things, charity, praying, fasting. 
These are things we're supposed to do every day, but there are spiritual sacrifices to God. You're giving these things specifically to God. They're supposed to be for his eyes. Whereas when Jesus is telling us to be salt and light, he's talking about us living in a way that's so different from the world that they can tell we are his disciples. They can see that we preserve what is good and that we live in a manner that's flavored with his righteousness and and that we enjoy his gifts and we enjoy them in the right way. See, they'll, they'll see that we do not tolerate evil, but that we advocate for what is good and just and right in the world. Now, throughout history, it was Christianity that created hospitals, universities, and orphanages. Orphanages. Nobody else made those. We made them first. It was Christians that led the way in adoptions and still lead the way in adoptions. Christians are the loudest voices calling for the protection of the unborn. When the church functions as salt and light, the world will look at us collectively as a whole. And what do they see? A city on a hill shining with God's brilliance. And that city can't be hidden, and it brings God glory. That's what chapter 5, verse 16 is talking about. But giving to charity and praying and fasting, these are individual acts of personal piety. If people see you doing them and you're doing it to be seen, they will look more at you than they do at God. They'll say to themselves, look how holy that guy is. He prays all throughout the day, and his words are so spiritual. Or look how holy that woman is. She just gave $1,000 to the homeless. Or look at that person over there. He fasts two days a week and he says it has brought him so close to God. You know, and so people are looking at those people. Truth be told, this is how the world looks at monks living in monasteries. They don't care if it's Catholic monks or Buddhist monks. They say, look at how holy these guys are. They live off donations of rice. They pray and meditate all day. They don't have iPhones. You know, all these things that distract us. No, they're above all that. Look at them, they're super spiritual. And yet what's missing in all that? Nobody's looking at God. Nobody's talking about God, they're talking about these people, right? And see, these aren't things that are supposed to be displayed before others because when they are displayed before others like that, nobody is looking at God. They look at the person that is practicing the act of righteousness. Listen, all three of these things are part of your relationship with God. They're between you and him so that you could grow in your dependence on him. And if you give to the poor and pray and fast and you do this regularly, you will grow in your relationship with God. You will grow in your dependence on him. Okay, all the other stuff we do, though, like telling the lost about Jesus, protecting the unborn, adopting kids, seeking the welfare of widows and orphans, sending missionaries to the ends of the earth, those are all good deeds that the world can't not see. They're going to see those, and that's okay, because those show the world that we truly are God's people. But those personal acts of piety, that's between us and God. So hopefully, you can see the clear difference. Also, remember, chapter 5, verse 16, showed the purpose was to glorify God. Chapter 6, verse 1, shows that the wrong purpose here is practicing your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. And I just want you to understand the most important part is the to be seen by them. Okay? He's not just saying don't practice righteousness in front of others. There's some, sometimes you just can't hide it. He's saying don't do it to be seen. Okay, that is what this is ultimately getting at here. Okay, it is to, the wrong motive is to be seen by men. Okay, so the good deeds in chapter 5 are to be seen in order to glorify God, but in chapter 6, verse 1, Jesus is talking about something different. He's saying, don't do good things for a bad purpose. Don't do them to be seen by men. If that's your motive, you're wrong. And if that's your motive, he says you have no reward with God. He is not impressed with your generosity, even if it's $5.4 billion. He's not impressed. He's not impressed with long prayers and frequent fasting if the reason you're doing it is to put on a show before people. He doesn't care in that case. In fact, it makes him angry. Now, the second half of verse 1 tells you this, if you look at it. If you do it for the wrong motive, he says, otherwise you have no reward with your Father in heaven. And it's interesting how he words this. He doesn't say you don't have, he doesn't merely say you have no reward from your father. He says you have no reward with your father. Our greatest reward is God himself. He will be his God and we will be his people. We will be in his presence forever, always seeing new depths of his infinite glory. Well, Jesus is saying if your motive for doing these good things is not because you love God, but instead it's because you like human attention, Well, then that tells us everything we need to know about your heart. It's a heart that doesn't know God. 
It's a heart that's in danger. And this was the chief problem with a lot of Pharisees. Not all the Pharisees, but a lot of them. Toward when Jesus is criticizing them for their hypocrisy, this is what he says in Matthew 23, 5. He says, they do everything to be seen by others. They enlarge their phylacteries and lengthen their tassels. And those were just Old Testament commands that Jews were supposed to keep. Good things for the time. And yet these guys made them longer to draw attention to themselves. And Jesus is saying, no, that's not, that's not right. So in summary of verse 1, practicing your righteousness, or as the Jewish people would say, your sadaka, okay, which is a technical word for charity, praying, and fasting. He says, if you do those things for the purpose of being seen by men, that's wicked. God doesn't accept it. It brings him a tainted glory because you're trying to take some of the glory for yourself first and to just give him what's left over. You're not fooling him. You might fool us, but you are not fooling him. Jesus is going to recommend secrecy in these three acts of piety, as we will see shortly. But let me say this ahead of time. He doesn't mean these things are always secret. Other biblical passages tell us to pray together. He prayed over meals. Some passages imply that we are going to fast together. And as a church, we did for a particular purpose for multiple months. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, Paul spoke about collecting the offering every Sunday as the church is gathered together. Well, if that's happening, people are going to see the offering be collected. They don't know how much you give, but they're going to know that giving's happening. So the the total secrecy, don't take it further than Jesus is meaning to, to take it. I feel compelled to point this out because some people do take it beyond what our Lord is saying. There are people who say, I will not write a check to the church because then somebody knows how much I gave. So I got to do it in cash so it's untraceable. And I can't let the IRS know for my tax write-off because that's letting my left hand know what my right hand's doing. Look, that's not what the Lord's getting at here. He made it clear the issue is giving in front of others to be seen by them. Okay, If you're not doing it to be seen, you don't have to wear a ski mask when you hand money to a homeless guy. You're going to scare him to death. Okay, so, so the point is the problem isn't these acts. The problem is doing them for the purpose of being seen by men. And if that's not your purpose, then you don't have to go out of your way to make sure no one ever sees you pray for a meal. But I'll tell you this, if you pray for a meal in a restaurant just so people will look, then you know what? Maybe, maybe you shouldn't do that for a while. Or you could do a silent prayer in your head where nobody could tell you're praying. But again, it depends on whether or not you're struggling with this. But anyway, there's one more thing I want to say about verse 1 before we move on. It is addressed to all of us. The the words your and you are plural. That means Jesus is talking to y'all, right? And so, and the reason for that is in verse 1, he's giving us the principle for the next 18 verses. Okay? When he moves to the acts of piety themselves, charity, Uh, praying and fasting, he's not going to say y'all anymore. He's going to say you, 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 you. He's going to be talking to us as individuals, um, not us as as a group. Okay, so that shows us this is about our individual personal acts of righteousness. It's not so much on what we do together as a church, although some of this applies, but most of it is talking about what we are doing between us and God. Okay, so the point for all 18 verses is let your personal righteousness be for God's eyes alone. Now, Jesus is going to move into the three examples. We're only going to get to verse 4. When have I ever been able to do 18 verses of Matthew in a single sermon? It's just not going to happen. So this morning, we're only going to get through charity, and the next time prayer, and then the next time fasting. But if the point for all 18 verses is let your personal righteousness be for God's eyes alone, then of course, that's why the point of these verses this morning are let your acts of charity be for God's eyes alone, because it's the specific example of one of these acts of righteousness. So we're going to look at verse two, because that's, you know, as I said, Jesus shows us this in two parts, how not to do it and how to do it. Verse two is the how not to do it. He shows you what wrong looks like here. Now, before we look at verse 2, let me just tell you something. He, gives, he, he breaks us down in four parts. What he said, when he tells you how not to do it and how to do it, there's four parts, and it'll be easy to recognize once I say this. First, he brings up the act of righteousness or piety itself, like when you give to the poor. Boom, that's the first part. Then the second part, he says what not to do. When you give to the poor, don't do X, Y, and Z. And then the third thing is he tells you the motive. When you give to the poor, don't do X, Y, and Z to be seen by men. And then the fourth part, he tells you your reward, which in this case, you don't get one. 
Okay, so with those four parts, now look at verse two. You won't be able to miss them. He says, whenever you give to the poor, don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be applauded by people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. So hopefully you saw the four parts there. So let's break this down. The first part introduces the act of piety itself. Jesus says, whenever you give to the poor. Now, I want you to notice something right away. Our Lord does not say, if you give to the poor. You notice that? He says, when you give to the poor. Almsgiving is a regular part of being a Christian. And this was non-controversial until American Christianity. But this was a big part of being a Christian, giving to the poor. So he says, when you give to the poor. It's not an option. It's so baked into the Christian life that Jesus takes it for granted. He doesn't command you to give to the poor because he assumes you already are. So his commandment isn't to give, but it's how to give. Okay? He's focusing on the right way. Remember, this was an important part of Judaism. And Jesus clearly accepted that this is what should be done. Now, if you read the intertestamental literature, that's the stuff Jews wrote between the Old and New Testament, and you read the rabbinical writings and all that, you would see that this was the normal expectation of the day, give to the poor. And Jesus is agreeing with that expectation here. In fact, in John chapter 13, verse 29, the apostles were keeping a money bag specifically for ministry to the poor. This is what they did. And it shouldn't be surprising to us Because in the Old Testament, God commanded that his people take care of the poor. There are so many verses, I couldn't even, we'd be here all day if I quoted them. I'll just quote two so we have a sample. Both are from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 28 and 29. This is right before Israel's going to go into the land. God's telling them how, how they're supposed to live. And he says, at the end of every three years, bring a tenth of all your produce for that year and store it within your city gates. Then the Levite, who has no portion or inheritance among you, the resident alien, the fatherless, and the widow within your city gates may come, eat, and be satisfied. And the Lord your God will bless you in all the work uh, that your hands, all the all the work of your hands that you do. And then in the next chapter, Deuteronomy fifteen eleven kind of gets to the heart of it. He says, "For there will never cease to be poor people in the land. That is why I'm commanding you." Open your hand willingly to your poor and needy brother in your hand. So don't be stingy. Open your hand, open your heart. Help the people who are in real need. This was the expectation in Israel because this is what God commanded them. It's the right thing to do. And as God's people, we're supposed to look at God and we're supposed to imitate him. Remember what Jesus said at the end of chapter five, be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. Now, we're not going to be morally perfect. We're still going to mess up. But Jesus' point is imitate God. That is your compass. Look at what God does. It always points to true north. So if you want to know what right looks like, look at our our, our God in heaven. Let me ask us a couple questions. Are we self-sufficient? No. Did you create the oxygen that you're breathing right now? Are you the one who made the sun rise over the land and pretty much uh, give sunlight so that crops will grow through photosynthesis? Are you the one who sends rains that water the earth to give us drinking water and to produce food? Do you sustain every molecule in existence holding all things together so that we can live in a stable world? No, you don't do any of those things. You're a beggar that is 100% dependent on the charity and generosity of God just for you to be able to live every day. He gives you air to breathe, food to eat, a stable earth to live in. He gives you intelligence so that you can survive. And he gives you another day of life each day you wake up alive. The point is our God gives and gives and gives. And he does so generously. He's not stingy. And if you add the salvation of those who believe, well, man, it gets even bigger. Think about that. He gave the perfect sacrifice, which was himself. Becoming a man and dying for us because we messed up. So he gives a perfect sacrifice to remove your debt of sin. He then gives you the perfect Holy Spirit to overcome your sinful heart, your heart of sin. And then he gives you the word of God, the Bible, so that you can know how to live in a way that loves God first and loves your neighbor as yourself second. Our God is a giver. He gives us what we need. Therefore, if we are his people, then like him, we should be givers. That's why Jesus can say when you give to the poor rather than if you give to the poor. 
The great irony is, as Americans and American believers in Christ, we're the richest people who've ever walked the face of the earth, and yet we are some of the most stingy people with what we have. We come up with more excuses to withhold help from the poor than most other people's. And as believers, it can't be that way. It must not be that way for us. If someone is in need and we have the means to give to them, then give to them. And if you're thinking, but I've been saving up. I want my new Xbox or I want this or I want that. I won't be able to eat in and out today. You know, I have to give up what I want if I do this. Yeah, that's love. What have we been seeing in the Bible? Love is always giving. It's not a feeling. It's giving. It's sacrifice. Love costs you something. And we're commanded to love our neighbors. We love ourselves. So, of course, it's going to cost you something to do this. That's the point. Now, I, don't, I also want us to understand that the Bible gives us other teaching that we do need to hold in the back of our mind and put together with this. It does tell us elsewhere that if a person can work but refuses to work, Paul the Apostle says that person shouldn't eat. So we are called to be wise stewards with what God entrusts to us. You don't waste your money on swindlers and panhandlers and scam artists. But those who are truly in need, yes, yes, you should help them. And that's the expectation that God has. So that's the first part of this. When you give to the poor. <laughs> Almsgiving is something that you regularly do if you're a believer. But the second part shows us that this could be done in a wrong way. So what is the wrong way? Well, Jesus says, when you give to the poor, he says, quote, don't sound a trumpet before you as, hip as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets. Now, what an image. Could you imagine somebody busting out a really large horn, blasting it loudly to where everybody stops what they're doing and they look, and then once he sees everybody's looking, he hands money to the poor. I mean, what an absurd image. Everyone would rightly think this person's a hypocrite. Everybody would be like, look at this guy. This guy just wants everyone to see how, gen uh, how generous he is. Well, in Jesus' time, most of the trumpets were shofars or ram horns. And these things aren't small. I, I brought one as a prop, okay? <laughs> so this thing is huge. Imagine, just imagine the absurdity of this. You see me walk to the back where we have the offering box, and I'm just tooting this thing loud. And then after my fifth toot, I drop a check in and then just walk away. Wouldn't that be the dumbest thing you've ever seen? <coughs> but that's, no. But that's what the, you know, that's how ridiculous the image is. It would be ridiculous. Now, let me tell you something. Because a lot of people are like, wow, those filthy Jews back then, this is exactly what they did. No, it's not. It's not. Contrary to popular belief, Jews did not do this. This would not have been accepted in that society. Pharisees did not walk around with the trumpets as they gave. No one did this. Jesus is simply using an example that everyone would agree is ridiculous. That way, when he gets to the wrong motive, which we'll see in a, in a, in a minute or two, this will, it'll have even more force to it. See, listen, if you are giving an order to be seen by men, even if it doesn't look like it's loud, but you're giving to be seen, he's saying you might as well blast a trumpet. You're doing the same thing as if somebody were being that ridiculous. God sees it the same way. That's what he's getting at with this. Now, some people try to, and I think it's just preacher stories, preachers trying to sound like, uh, oh, this will be good. People will be like, oh. But some people will say it's not really a trumpet at all. It's talking about a giving box in Jerusalem. And you may have heard this before. And what they would say is that the giving box, uh, the top of it was shaped like a horn. It was like a funnel. And if you drop coins down it, it's like, ting, 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 ting. so if you drop a boatload of coins, everybody's hearing like, wow. That guy must have given a lot. And so people would say, that's the trumpet Jesus is talking about. It's not true for three reasons. First, Jesus is talking about giving in the synagogue and on the street, not in Jerusalem. Second, we don't know if those funnels in Jerusalem would have made the noise people suggest. And third, the box in Jerusalem for giving to the poor was actually in a room in the temple called the Chamber of Secrets. No, not the Harry Potter Chamber of Secrets. This one was older, okay, because this one was real, okay? You had this room called the Chamber of Secrets. It was a private room that you anonymously went into and you dropped your money into the chest and then you left. And then a person who was in need anonymously goes in and the manager of the fund would give it to them. Judaism prized the idea of not letting your left hand know what your right hand was doing, that it was supposed to be in secret, okay? And so they've always been against the hypocrisy that Jesus is bringing up here. So why is he bringing it up? Well, because apparently there were hypocrites 
that still do this in the synagogue and out in the street. Now think about it. The society, by and large, said this is a bad thing. They would all agree it's a bad thing. And yet, there are still people who struggle with this. Let me ask you, is it any different for us? Is it different in our culture? You know, our culture does not actually like it if you grandstand. Go to anywhere in this desert and start bragging about how good you are. People are going to be like, and they're going to be watching you to mess up, right? So our society doesn't accept this. But at the same time, we don't bat an eye when people donate to charity in order to get a building named after them. Or when they call a PBS televised fundraiser and have their full name and the dollar amount announced. And in the church, we will have people who with their mouth will say, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. But that same day, They'll go do something good for somebody, but in their heart, they're doing it because they want credit. They want to be seen by men. So my point is, just because they thought it was wrong back then, didn't mean that a lot of people still didn't secretly struggle with this and didn't do this. It's no different from then to now, okay? This is why Jesus is talking to individuals, not y'all, but you, 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 you. He's talking to us as individuals because we all have this temptation to some degree. He's telling us right here, don't do it to be seen. Why? He says, because you'll be like the hypocrites. That's the word he used. So we need to talk about this word. Today, when we call someone a hypocrite, we refer to someone that lives one, they tell you to live one way, but then they actually live the opposite. And that's a true definition. That's a good definition. But I'd say that's the most obvious definition. There are more subtle ways that you can be a hypocrite. And Jesus is getting at the more subtle ways. See, our regular definition would have you tell people to do good as you are doing bad. But in Jesus' example here, they're not doing a bad thing. They're doing a good thing. They're actually giving to the poor. The bad thing would be them withholding from the poor. But that's not what's happening. They're actually doing the good thing. They're giving to the poor. Okay? These hypocrites were generous. On paper, they're obeying God's commands. So why are they still hypocrites? Well, the word hypocrite originally was a term from the theater. Some of you know this already. It's how actors pretended to be someone that they're not. And if an actor is good, then you believe they're they're acting. You, You believe what they're doing. That's their job. For example, Matt Damon is not really Jason Bourne. But when you watch those movies, I'm not seeing Matt Damon. I'm seeing deadly Jason Bourne. Okay? That means the actor has done a good job. And in the movie world... That's the right thing for him to do. But in real life, it's not okay. It's not okay to pretend you're something you're not. See, Jesus is saying when you do the right thing, like giving alms, but you're doing it only for the applause of men, he says you're acting. You're a hypocrite. You're acting. Your generosity is not because you're imitating God. It's not because you care about the poor. It's because you care about yourself. You care about your image. And because of that, I'm going to say something that might sound strange at first, but hear me out. In that case, you are not giving, you're buying. You're not giving, you're buying. It is a commercial transaction. You are giving the money to get something in return. And what you're getting in return is social capital and honor. You're getting the respect of people and you're paying for it. That is buying, not giving. Okay, that simple. True benevolence is when you give with no intention of getting anything back from either the recipient or society. You mean for it to cost you something and gain you nothing. That's the right way. But if you give in order to get something, even if it's something invisible, like respect and honor, then as I said, you're buying. You're not giving. Yet, since you're making it look like you're giving, when in fact you're buying, you are acting. And because you're acting, you are a hypocrite. That's what Jesus is getting at. So hypocrisy isn't just saying one thing and doing another, even though that's part of it. It's also doing a good thing with a bad motive. That makes you a hypocrite. And Jesus is commanding us to have nothing to do with that. Again, he says, don't be like the hypocrites that blow a trumpet. Now he gives us the third part, to be applauded by people. And then the fourth part, truly I tell you, they have their reward. Okay? The bad motive to be seen by men, that is why they're hypocrites. And since they are buying rather than giving what they bought, meaning that respect, that's their only reward. They're not getting anything from God. They bought respectability in the eyes of people with their giving. And by the way, that respectability only lasts for a couple minutes. But that's their reward. That is their reward. And if you notice, 
Jesus shows the right thing here being done in the wrong manner due to a wrong motive. The wrong manner is they're giving loudly. The wrong motive is they're doing it for the applause of people. And the result is no reward for God other than no reward from God. The only thing they get is the two seconds of respectability that they just bought in the eyes of people who will forget the next time they uh, walk into a different room. Okay? In a moment, Jesus is going to show us the exact opposite of what right looks like, but that's what wrong looks like. I want to first, though, call your attention to how God sees this kind of hypocrisy. If you are doing the right things, things that God commands, things that God normally loves, if you're doing them in the wrong manner with the wrong motive, then God actually hates the right thing that you're doing. I want you to know that. It's not just that he's indifferent to it. He hates it. In fact, look, look what he says through the prophet Amos. In Amos chapter 5, verses 21 through 24, everything that God says he despises are all things he commanded them to do. But because of their hypocrisy, he hates that they're doing it. He says, I hate, I despise your feasts. I can't stand the stench of your solemn assemblies. Even if you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. I will have no regard for your fellowship offerings of fattened cattle. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice flow like water and righteousness like an unfailing stream. In other words, be a just people. Be a people that follow me from the heart and I'll love these things. But since you're not, since you're hypocrites, I hate these things that you're doing that seem to obey me on the surface. So this means that any good thing you do with the wrong motive, God hates it. And if this is the hypocrisy that Jesus describes, then we need to ask, who are the hypocrites in our day? It was interesting. I met a couple at Starbucks this week. That's my second office. Um, and they told me how they've been to uh, a number of churches up here where the pa- one of them, this was just so egregious. He said the pastor was uh, told the congregation that we're taking an offering. You're all going to give today. You all have to give. And I don't want anybody giving less than $100. If you give less than $100, you're not doing what God wants. And for everybody who gives $150, they get to sit on this side of the room. And then everybody else has to sit on that side of the room. This is a supposed man of God telling Christ's sheep to do the exact opposite of what Christ says. I fear for that man when he stands before our Lord of glory. It's just crazy. And of course, you could turn on the TV and see this kind of thing. You have the false teachers of the prosperity gospel. They first boast about what they've done for the Lord. So you're like, oh, 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 look at them, right? And then, you know, that's not Botox. The Lord healed their face, you know, or whatever. And then, and then they promise. Then they promise that if you give to their ministry, God will open the floodgates of heaven. God will open the floodgates of heaven. They abuse that Malachi passage. And then that God will bless you with health and wealth. And he'll give you all the desires of your heart. And so people give all this money. And you want to know the only thing that happens? The preacher gets a new helicopter. But nothing happens to the poor person who gave to him. That is just wicked. You have these poor people throwing their money away. And sometimes they'll announce somebody who gave a lot just to tempt everybody else. Like, well, I want to be announced too. It's pure wickedness. Now, out in the world, we see this with celebrities like Warren Buffett, letting everyone know how much they give to charity. But you, know, you want to know the interesting thing? Even though Forbes magazine will, will write on this, the world still looks down on it because even comedians make fun of giving or, or they make fun of this kind of hypocrisy. If you can remember back to the 1990s, I know, a long time ago, ancient history, but Seinfeld was one of the, the big sitcoms then. And there was one particular episode where the, the wretch of the show, George Costanza, left a tip for a calzone baker, but the guy was looking away and didn't see him leave the tip. And so then he said, what's the point of giving the tip if they don't know you gave it? And then Jerry's like, so what? You don't give to the blind? He's like, not bills, you know? <laughs> and of course, the whole audience was, you, you hear that and you're supposed to laugh. But you also, you laugh because you know it's wrong. You're like, George is such a jerk. And so, again, the world knows this. If the world deep down knows that this kind of thing is wrong, and if we look in disgust at the religious hypocrites like I mentioned a minute ago, look, we need to look at our own hearts, too. Jesus gave this teaching to a society like ours that hated this kind of hypocrisy, but he knew that even a lot of their leaders were giving into its temptation. Do we do the same? Do we serve in church using our gifts in order to be seen? 
If so, then being seen is your only reward. Do you announce what you give? Do you let everybody know what you do? If so, then people hearing that is your only reward. And a warning to us preachers here. Do we preach just to hear a good job at the end of the service? If so, then that's our reward. All you social media addicts out there, do you only write your nuggets of wisdom to get likes and follows? If so, then that is the reward for your nuggets of wisdom. We all, all of us, every single one of us needs to guard our hearts on, the, on this. All of us, pastors, deacons, elder interns, ministry leaders, those who serve and even those who just sit. We all need to guard our hearts on this. And Jesus told us now so far how not to do acts of charity. We now know what wrong looks like, but what does right look like? Well, Jesus finishes by showing us this in verses 3 and 4. So let's take a look. He says this. He says in verse 3 and 4, But when you give to the poor, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, if you notice this, this is the mirror image of verse 2 on how not to do it. It has the same four parts. It's just parts 2 and 3 are flipped, right? And so you have the first part announcing the act again when you give. The second part, instead of telling you how not to do it, tells you how to do it. The third part, instead of telling you the bad motive, tells you the good motive. And then the fourth part tells you, in this case, there really will be a reward, okay? And the reward, there's a reward from God. So let's break this down. He starts off with the righteous act. He says, when you give to the poor, and this word, this word, well, in English, it's words, gives to the poor. It's actually just one word in Greek. It's one of the hardest words for me to say. It's elemasune. Yes. You don't know how many times I messed up when I practiced. Elemasune. That word is the biblical word for ministries of mercy. Giving to the poor and taking care of their needs is summed up by that biblical word. And that's why it's so important that churches have active and robust mercy ministries. As God's salt and his light, we show the world, uh, we show them our God with our good works. And part of this is imitating his generosity uh, by us helping those who are poor and vulnerable. It, it is to show pity and meet their needs. Remember, James says it does no good to tell somebody, go and be warm, and then you don't do anything to help them. Right? So we're supposed to actually do good for the poor. Now, this passage is not about tithing, ultimately. He's saying when you give to the poor. Okay? Now, some of the, the rules overlap, but again, he's talking specifically about mercy and disaster relief. Christ is speaking to you again, you, 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 singular you, right? And focusing on your personal giving to the poor. And he, Now, even though he's talking to you, I just want to say that he expects us, though, as a whole, to practice this in a corporate sense. For example, Paul raised collections from many churches in Greece to help uh, fund the poverty uh, that was happening in Judea. And so this was a, a big part of what they did. Churches did raise money for this purpose. And again, we've been doing the same thing. And so I want you to think about this. Of the acts of personal righteousness, Christ agreed with the rest of Judaism that charity should be at the top of the list. And I think that's why it's so important that as a church, we emphasize helping the poor. We emphasize mercies of, of, of our um, ministries of mercy. That's part of our mission from Jesus. And I just want to say, as a pastor, and I know the other pastors feel the same way, we're proud of you guys. Year after year, as a church as a whole, okay? Because we mention a lot of needs in the community and in the world, and you guys consistently step up. I remember when Hurricane Harvey hit years ago, um, last minute, you guys raised a couple thousand dollars to help those folks out in Texas. This year, we wanted to bless five local families with Thanksgiving dinners. You guys gave enough to bless 13. Inflation has hit everyone hard. We didn't know if our youth would be able to afford to go to Bible camp or winter camp. It's $270. So we did a little fundraiser, hoping to raise $500 just to knock a little bit off. You guys gave $3,700. So now most of the kids are going for free. They just got to pay a $25 deposit. Okay? And I don't feel bad, because you guys might be saying, hey, you're mentioning right hand, left Listen, I don't feel bad mentioning our mercy giving as a church, because Jesus is talking to individuals. 
We don't know how much each person gives to these things. We just have the totals. And if you look at Paul in 2 Corinthians trying to motivate the Corinthian church to give towards the poorer churches in Jerusalem, what did he do? He brought up how much the Macedonian church gave. He didn't say what each individual was giving. But as churches, we are able to say, hey, we're doing these things. And and, and the Lord sees it and the world sees it. Remember, Christ here is focusing on you as an individual, but as a body, we want to keep track of as a whole what we're doing. Now, I know at this time of year, as I mentioned in the, in the announcements, we ask a lot of you. We ask for Operation Christmas Child, and guess what? You did. We sent, I believe, more boxes this year than we sent last year. So now there's kids all over the world hearing the gospel. And same thing with Lottie Moon, okay? Every year you beat yourself, and I'm praying that you'll, you'll, you'll beat your last yourself again. That way we keep giving more to the, the cause of Christ, okay? And so taking care of the poor, doing these ministries of mercy, that's what Jesus is getting at. But when he's talking about you, you as the individual, in verse 3 he says, but when you give to the poor, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. So as we give, and remember, there's no question that we are giving. It's assumed already. He's telling us how to do it now. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. Jesus is the one who coined this expression because it's found nowhere else, and now it's one of the most popular sayings in the world. So rather than tooting your own horn, he gave us that one as well, you're to give in such a way that you're not even thinking about it. That's what the left hand and right hand means. It's a figure of speech. Your hands don't know anything. But think about it. When you're working all day, at the end of the day, are you able to say, well, you know, my left hand did about 35% of the tasks and my right hand. No, it's just, it's all working together. And you couldn't tell anybody for the life of you how much each part did. And that's what he's saying. Just give in such a way that it's such a natural part, you lose track of it. And if you lose track of it, then you won't be tempted to tell others what you've done. Okay, I've heard it put to us this way. If you remember the good that you do, God forgets it. But if you forget it, God remembers it. And, and one thing that stands out to me is when Jesus returns, he said in Matthew 25, verses 35 and 40, he talks about separating the sheep from the goats. The sheep are those who are saved. And he says, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was in prison, you visited me. And these guys were unaware. They're dumbfounded. Like, Jesus, when did we do those good things? He said, what you did for the least of my brothers, you've, you've done for me. In other words, these guys lived in such a way that they weren't keeping track of what they were doing. So when Jesus brought it up, they're like, we did? You know, and, and that's kind of how, that's what he's telling us we're, we're supposed to do. Okay, so do good. Take care of others. Do it in such a way that you don't think about it, that it's your character and your nature. And then one day, Jesus will say to you, hey, you did a lot of uh, generous things. I have a reward for you. And if you weren't keeping track, you're going to be like, I did. I'm sure I could have done more. Don't know what you're talking about, Jesus. And then he'll start reminding you of those things. And then he'll reward you for them. Okay, that is how we serve Jesus in the right way. That is how we give in the right way. That's how you should conduct your charity. Now, in the first part of verse 4, he gives us the right motive. He says we're to do this, quote, so that your giving may be in secret and your father sees. Right? So, in other words, our motive needs to be the opposite of the bad motive. They give so men will see. We give so men won't see. We don't want them to see. We only want God to see. In fact, we want to get to the point where we're not even really seeing it in ourselves, lest we might be tempted to boast. We want it in secret. But again, let me just remind us of this so nobody goes too far on this. It is not a strict command to give in such a way that no one can ever see. Listen, if you are captive to this particular sin, then yes, you need to get extreme and give, find a chamber of secrets, find a way to give where no one will ever know. And until you have finally reached contentment that God alone knows, then you need to keep doing that. Now, once you're content in the fact that God knows, you can lighten up a little bit. You can relax a bit. But otherwise, no. <laughs> to avoid that sin of hypocrisy, you might need to get radical. But if you're not captive to this kind of hypocrisy, then again, you don't have to go into a chamber of secrets. You're already discreet. You already have the right motive. You're already giving, trying not to be seen as you give. So as I said earlier, you don't have to wear a ski mask when you, when you hand a wad of cash to a homeless person. And, uh, and, you know, this applies also to giving in the church. In the book of Acts, people sold property, and then they brought the money and laid it at the feet of the apostles. Okay, so again, it's not like everything is 100% secrecy. 
That means when the bag is passing around, we don't all have to put blindfolds on and just, you know, feel for it. No, okay, that's not how it works. And just to let you guys know, for what it's worth, your leaders here, we have no idea what you give. We don't want to know what you give, okay? So if you've been given, like, oh, Josh, Steve, and John are going to see this one. and No, we will not. And so we are helping you with your temptation, just to let you know. We want to do everything we can to help you give for God's eyes alone. Okay, so that is what it means to ultimately give in secret. Your motive is you're doing it to please God and not impress man. Jesus then finishes by telling us there's a reward when we do it the right way. Look at verse 4. It ends with him saying, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. That should be motive enough. Now, you might be wondering, well, what will that reward be? Jesus will later speak of treasure in heaven. He's going to speak of, in his parables, of some folks being given more based on their faithful service. I don't know what that looks like. I don't know for sure. But I could tell you this. It's not less than what he promised in the Beatitudes in chapter 5. And what did he tell us there? He said, you will be comforted as God wipes every tear from your eye. You will inherit the earth. You will be perfectly filled with God's own righteousness. You will be given perfect and endless mercy. You will see God with your own eyes without being obliterated. And God will declare you to be his sons. And he will give you everything as his heirs. That is, the reward is no less than that. So here's what I picture. I picture Jesus doling out all sorts of amazing awards and heavenly treasures, whatever those might be. It's probably beyond our imagination. We have them, we're like, whoa. And then he says, by the way, the greatest reward of all. And then God the Father appears, right? And we can finally see him. Can't see him now because we die. But then we'll have glorified bodies that can't die, that have no sin, and we'll be able to see perfection. We'll be able to see infinite power and beauty. We'll see God, and he'll be everywhere, here, here, here. You don't have to go to a spot for him. He is literally everywhere. And we would all at the same time feel him wipe all of our tears away forevermore. At the exact same time, we'd hear him talk to everybody, but also just to us. That's what I imagine. I imagine gazing into his perfect, infinite beauty and power only to have our breath taken away and we take all those treasures Jesus gave us and we just throw it back at him saying, these things are nothing compared to the God that we're seeing. That is what we stand to inherit. The beatific vision of God is what the ancient theologians used to call it. What, what reward could there possibly be greater than being with God himself? God is our reward. So loved ones, that should be the motive for us giving charity and praying and fasting. If you could use your imagination, like I just tried to do, uh, to picture that day, no matter how extravagant your imagination is, it's still going to fall short of the reality of your reward that day. So if that is what is in our hearts, why would we ever trade that everlasting reward just to have a bunch of sinful humans golf clap for us for a couple seconds? That is such a bad trade. May it never be. May we be those who give in secret and please our Father in heaven who sees in secret. May this be our heart. May hypocrisy be far from us. Now, if there are any unbelievers here that are listening, perhaps you've denounced Christianity because the church has so many hypocrites. Well, I hope you notice what Jesus has said. He hates hypocrisy too. And I could promise you he hates it more than you do. But let me tell you this. Your charge against the church is not as much of an own as you think it is. Christians would be hypocrites more so if we denied that we sin. Like when we call out sin, if we also denied that we sin, yes, there'd be hypocrisy. But no real Christian would ever deny that we sin. We struggle with sin all the time. In fact, we're, and so because of that, we're not pretending to be something we're not. I want you to think about this. The church is the only organization... The only group of people in the world where acknowledgement of your own sin is a prerequisite of entering. Okay, this is the only organization where you are only part of Christ's church if you come up to God and say, I am a vile sinner, save me. That's the entrance requirement. You know, and, and then it tells us if we convince ourselves we have no sin, we're liars. So we know better. We know that we are sinners. We are sinners who have basked in the endless mercy of a wonderful Savior, a Savior who saves us to the utmost. 
And in that salvation, so Jesus saves us, right, by removing our sin debt, giving us his own righteousness. I'll explain that in a minute, okay? He does that, and then after he saves us, he gives us everything we need so we sin less and less and less and grow to be more and more like him. That's what the Christian life is like. So we don't just keep doing the same bad things. We get better and better and better because since he saved us, he gives us the ability to grow, so before you feel justified denouncing, you know, Christian hypocrisy, I want you to understand if you don't know Jesus, you actually carry around the greatest fraud imaginable because you think and live as a creature that acts as if he or she is independent of the creator, as if that oxygen is yours, as if that intelligence is yours, as if that rain and that sun all comes from you. You are not independent of your creator. And as long as you deny that God is the king and that we are supposed to live according to his design and according to his character, then you're actually wearing the greatest mask of theater that has ever been made. And a day is coming, a day of judgment where all those who reject God and the Savior, Jesus Christ, they will be judged for their sins and those masks will be shattered and they will be exposed for what they are. We don't want that to be any of you. You can receive the same forgiveness of sins we have. You can have the same salvation we have here, even though we still struggle with sins. It's simple. God is one God that's eternally three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. 2,000 years ago, the Son entered his own creation as a man. That's what these Christmas songs are all about. He added humanity to his divinity. He's 100% God, 100% man, and he did what we failed to do. He lived a perfect life, never sinning once. Why did he do it? So he could give the credit of that perfection to those who believe in him. So if you believe in Jesus, you get the credit of all the good he did. The Father looks at you and says, perfect score. Well, what about all the wrong you've done? God takes all that, puts it in Jesus' account, and he was crushed on that cross for our sins, paying the debt that we owe so that we wouldn't have to pay it. He died, and then he rose on the third day. If you turn away from your sins and believe on Jesus as Lord, surrender to him, and give him your heart, you will be saved. Every sin you've ever committed and will ever commit will be wiped out because he paid, he paid it all on the cross. And you will be credited with his perfect score and you will live forever. You will receive the Holy Spirit who will change your heart and slowly conform you to be more and more like Jesus. And then you will be one who goes and tells others about Jesus so that they could be saved. You would be one thirsty person who told another thirsty person where you could find the water. That is what the Lord does to us when he saves us. So don't stay in your sin. Don't turn away from God and say, you know what, forget him. Because a day is coming where those masks will be exposed and we do not want you to be condemned forever. So we're going to pray because the sermon's over um, and we're going to prepare for the Lord's Supper. But as I'm praying, if you want to receive the Lord, you can say your own prayer to God. Where God, I'm turning away from my sin. I really believe on you, Jesus. Save me and you'll be saved. Then afterwards, come up and, and uh, talk to one of the leaders here because we would gladly uh, tell you more. Uh, but that 